1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Dependence is not a valued attribute in our day. If you take a look at job adverts or personal specifications for jobs, you will know uh, that uh, the things that are valued are, um, uh, and the things that people look for in employees are people who will be self-starters, people who will be independent workers, and people who, who have uh, that hard-to-define term, personal resilience. That's what the world is looking for. And it's not just the world that's looking for that. We as people, as individuals, take great pride in autonomy. We see it as a good thing. We seek it. We want to encourage it. We want to be more autonomous in so many different ways. And as we come to God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 12... As we often find as we look at the scriptures, God's word calls us to counter-cultural thinking. Indeed, so much of 1 Corinthians is like that, isn't it? Paul is speaking about how the culture is saying one thing, and yet God calls us to live and to be something very, very different. And in our passage this evening, God calls us to mutual dependence on one another, seeing our need for each other And as James has already prayed, to recognize the gifts that we can all bring in God's service together. When it comes to the life of the church and the things that God has called us to do, 
We cannot, this is key, we cannot serve God independently. We can only function and fulfill our calling as we serve God together. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, we're in a section in 1 Corinthians where Paul is explaining about what we've talked about as spiritual gifts, gifts that God gives to the church for the good of the body. And last week, we spent some time working through the first 11 verses of chapter 12. And we saw the foundational principles that Paul establishes there for how the spiritual gifts that God gives are to be used and what their purpose is for and why the Lord has given them to us. And we saw that the triune God gives you a gift. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. He gives you that gift um, with variety across the church through his great difference and variety. He gives it according to his will. And purposes, and he gives it for the good of others and not for ourselves. And the big takeaway for us an application was to see that we should have contentment, not comparing ourselves to others, but rather seeking to bloom, to flourish where we are planted with the gifts God gives, with the opportunities we have, and leaving the outcome to him. So that was the first 11 verses. Now we come into Verses 12 to 31, what is the new idea in 12 to 31? What is Paul developing in his thought? How is it moving forward? Well, the new idea in this section is the need for one another that we might function as a body. That we might do what God has called us to do. And we're going to see that we all have individual contributions to make to the body and the work that God has called us to. So this evening, we're going to see one big idea in verses 12 to 14. That will be our first point. Then we're going to see Paul applying that one big idea to two specific situations. And then maybe we'll have time to think about two further implications, but we'll see how we go. Let's start, first of all, uh, with one big idea. And the big idea that Paul is going to set up in verses 12 to 14, but then work through in the rest of this chapter, is that the church, that we are one body with different parts. One body with different parts. So to the church, to the people of God, God says, Paul says in verses 12 to 14, you are one body, you are united in the Lord Jesus Christ, And you are made up of many parts. There is a diversity of gifts within the body. And Paul uses this picture of the church being a body right through the passage. Now, that's really interesting because it's unusual for Paul to take a picture and use it as fully as he does here. Very often in, in a sermon, there'll be an illustration And then we move on, don't we? And there's a different illustration and we move on. But here, remarkably, Paul really works very carefully and deeply with this idea of the church as a body. And that should strike us. And the more you think about this picture of the church as a body, you see just how wonderfully chosen and selected it is. Because, of course, this is God's divine uh, purpose in choosing to teach us about our life as his people in this way. I mean, mean, think about it, nothing else in all of creation has the same sense of connected wholeness such that we are joined together and depending upon each part, and yet also great variety and difference 
in terms of its form and its function within the whole. It's an amazing thing. I remember um, when I was growing up, there was a, um, a, a, a man who would listen to talks. He was a, a Christian leader. And uh, men who would speak when he was there listening, he was a well-known speaker, um, if they used an illustration, uh, and he got out a little notepad from his pocket, and he made a note, they would know that they'd used a really good illustration. Because Werner Wright had noted the illustration in his pocketbook, and he was going to use it in one of his talks. And you know, the more I think about this picture of the church as a body, unified whole, varied different parts... It's a wonderful picture. just fills your mind with just the wonder of it because, because every part of the human body is in some way connected to the rest, isn't it? If you get an infection in your little toe, your head will know about it. And every part of the human body has a function, an important function. Even the appendix now, we think, that part that we weren't sure what it was there for has a function to play, uh, scientists believe. So, it is a wonderful picture. But what makes the church one body? This is the key question. What makes the church one body? Well, Paul explains that what makes the church a body is that everyone joins the body in exactly the same way. This is the great source of unity within the people of God. Um, Some of you will know that um, I like cricket. And now and again, I had the pleasure of going to a cricket match at Edgbaston. And when you go to Edgbaston, uh, if you go into the cheap seats like we do, um, then you have to queue up with hundreds of other people to get into the ground. Now, it's a very well-run ground, but however well they run it, the bag check still takes time. The ticket scanning still takes some time. And, of course, everyone turns up five minutes before the start of the game. So there's big queues. But if you've got the big bucks and you've got the money... You don't have to go in the cheap seats. You can go in the VIP seats. And there is a door. I know very well where it is. I'm sure there's a number of them. Well, there's a man there with a security badge. And if you go to that man and you show him your special ticket, you walk straight in. It is not like that with the church. There are not multiple ways in to the people of God. There are not multiple ways in which we join the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone joins in exactly the same way. And because everyone joins in the same way, there is great unity within the body. That's what creates a oneness. Now let's see how Paul explains that in the text. Look down at verse uh, 13 where he says, For we were all baptized by or in one spirit so as to form one body. That's the key verse that's teaching this. Now, this baptism in the Spirit is another way of speaking of the work of conversion in a person's heart. That work of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is a central work that Jesus Christ came to do to, to bring men and women to faith in Him. So, if you remember, when John the Baptist is speaking about what he's doing in baptizing, he says, I've come to do a baptism of repentance, but one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, I think it is. If you want to check it, it's in uh, Matthew 3, verse 11. And what that is speaking of is that Jesus has come to bring men and women and boys and girls into his kingdom, and he does that by giving them the Holy Spirit as they come to faith in him. So this term, being baptized, 
in the one spirit to form one body is this sense of entering into the people of God by the one way. And I think it's the same thing as Paul is saying at the end of the verse. If you look at the end of verse 13 where he says, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. That could also be translated, we were also watered by the one spirit. So I think it's the same idea that we are baptized in the one spirit to come into the body. We drink of the one spirit in coming to faith. And this is the common experience, the one entry point for every Christian when we turn and we trust, we turn from sin and we trust Christ and then we receive the Spirit. So do you see, friends, that when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, there are not multiple entrances. There is one way in. We all come the same way. Now, what does that do? Well, it does this. It means that the basis of our solidarity as a people of God is not sameness. It is that we come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we understand verse 13 like that, um, it helps us a lot because some people look at verse 13 and they want to speak of a separate baptism of the Spirit that is only for some and not for others. And maybe you've heard of people who teach this. So they might say that you come to faith in Christ and then subsequently at a future date, you have a, a future baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think that is what Paul is speaking about here because it completely destroys his argument to say that. Because Paul is saying the one way in which every Christian comes into the church is through this baptism of the Spirit, faith in Christ. And so if this was something for some and not for everyone, the whole of Paul's argument would fall apart. You would be having elite Christians who are baptized in the Spirit. And Paul does not want us to think that way. He wants us to think of one body, unity in Christ. And so he says, verse 13... Whether you are Jew or Gentile, slave or free, he's taking there the, the, the broadest of ethnic and social extremes. He says, whatever your background you're coming from, whatever your circumstances in life, we are all united in that body of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one body. But, and here's the second part of this first point, there is one body that has different parts. Look down with me. Let's see it in the text. It's there in verse 13. Just as one body, just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. And then verse 14, Paul says, and so the body is not made of one part, but of many. So there is, Paul says, great diversity within the one body. And, and here's where the illustration is so wonderful, without the varied parts, it would not be a body. You know, if all of us were the same with our gifts and our temperaments and all those things, well, what would we be? Well, we would just be a collection of connected feet, which would not be a body. It would just be a collection of connected feet. We wouldn't be able to function. But here's the wonder of it. One body, different parts. That means this, friends, that your individuality, 
your temperament, and particularly, I think Paul is particularly reminding us here, your individual gifting is not something that should be lost within the one body. The uniqueness of that is, in fact, integral to the function of the body. And this diversity and difference is possible because the unifying truth isn't sameness. But rather, it is that shared conversion experience, that one way in. So we've seen this big idea, one big idea. We are one body with many different parts. Now let's come to two different situations that Paul applies it to. And the first is this, two different problems. Our second point is, we've seen one body many parts. And now we come to a second point where Paul applies that framework to the problem of inferiority. And here we look at verses 15 to 20. And the thinking here is a thinking that we do not belong because we are different. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, now if the foot should say, I, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. Now, what's the logic that's behind this this problem of feeling inferior? Well, the logic is is very simply that because we think I am not like someone else, that means I don't belong. My gifts are different, and so I don't have a part to play. Now, we think that way because of a heart struggle that goes on within us around the problem of acceptance. Because deep down, we are all afraid that we might be dispensable. We wonder how we fit in, and we want to be accepted and to be indispensable. And so Paul is going to address that problem of feeling inferior, feeling like we don't fit in, by three specific responses. Let's trace them through. His first thing he's going to say, and we're still in the second point, how does he address this thought that I do not belong? The first thing he says is, what you say does not affect who you are. It's there in verses 15 and 16. He says, if you say, I do not belong, and he's explicit in saying, you would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. So just because you say something or just because you feel something doesn't mean that something isn't true. That's the big point here. Now, why is that the case? Well, it's the case because of what we've seen in verses 12 to 14. We are part of the body because we have come and joined the body in the same way. We have been, bap- we have been converted and been baptized in the Spirit. We have been watered by the spirits, And that makes us part of the body. So however much we might say it, or however much we might think it, Paul is saying God has done something to make you a part of this body. Put it another way, what we feel or think about our parts in the body does not affect our status in that body. Whatever I might think, whatever you might feel, about your place does not affect whether you have a part, whether you have a place. Because God has done something in Christ to join you 
to the body of Christ. The Bible does us a lot in how we should think. So important, it's so important that we see that God's actions matter more than our thoughts. What God has done in reality governs how we should think about who we are and how we fit in. And so Paul says, what you say does not affect who you are. But then he also says, and here's a second way he addresses this question, this struggle of of feeling inferior. Your gifts are needed. That's there in verse 17. Now, I I don't think I have, if I think back, I don't think I've had an experience of a, a significant loss of one of my senses. But I know that many in this room have, either through illness or through age or through other uh, situations. And I know from talking to people who have been through that, that that is one of the most disorientating things that can happen. Because we need all of our senses in order to have balanced function. And Paul here is going to say that the body needs the unique contribution of each individual part in order to function. That's Paul's key point. Let's see it there in verse 17. Look at the verse. We'll read it together. He says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? The key point here is the body could not function properly without our different gifts. They're needed. They're important. They matter. They bring something that others don't bring. And I think that is something of what Paul is speaking about in the final paragraph of our passage. If you have a Bible, just jump down there to verses 29 to 31, which is quite a tricky passage to think what Paul is speaking about there as it relates to the rest of the passage. But I think that's what he's driving at there in verse 28, where he lists various gifts in verse 28, and then in verse 29 asks seven questions about each of the gifts, saying, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all these things? And the answer, of course, to that is no. Not everyone has the same gifts. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that if all those gifts are needed for the life of the church and those gifts are shared within the body of the church, then your contribution is needed. It's valuable. One Christian doesn't have every gift. That's what Paul is saying. Therefore, the range of gifts is needed for the life of the body to function. But then he gives an interesting qualification in verse 31, which is a debated verse, but I'm going to try and explain it. Because in verse 31, he says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And I think what's being said here is that whilst all the gifts that God has given to his church today are needed, that does not mean that all the gifts are equally beneficial for the church as a whole. Some are greater, in Paul's word there in verse 31, because they bring more benefit to the life of the body. The the Corinthians' problem is that they seem to value some gifts, particularly the gift of tongues, too highly. We see that in chapter 14 in verses 5 and 6. And they had neglected more beneficial gifts. 
and they were to rather desire those. And that's what Paul then is perhaps explaining in verses 28, in verse 28, where he teaches that some gifts are foundational to the life of the church. He speaks of how God has given first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And I think that's why they're ordered, because they're foundational gifts to the life of the body. They all ground the church in God's truth. The apostles received teaching from Jesus and passed that teaching on to the church. The prophets spoke infallible, perfect revelation from God for the people of God. And the teachers explain and apply God's truth. Now, now my understanding is the apostolic and the prophetic gift has ceased to be given because they were foundational gifts for the church. But the gift of teaching continues as it explains and applies God's word given through the apostles and the prophets. So, what Paul is doing there in that section is that he is reminding us that all gifts are helpful to the life of the church. Some gifts are especially helpful to the life of the church, but all gifts are valuable to God's people. So the implication is, your gifts are needed. What you say does not affect who you are. Your gifts are needed for the church. And then third way he answers this question, your gifts are God's design. Look there at verse 18 where Paul says, but in fact God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So that means, friends, that God has placed you with particular gifts within the body, just as he wanted you to be. See that personalized. Friend, God has made you. He's made you as a man or a woman in his image, with a particular personality and all the gifts that you have. You didn't make yourself that way. Somebody else didn't make yourself that way. The the almighty, the sovereign, the great God of heaven made you that way. And that should make us very careful to say, my gifts don't matter, or my gifts mean that I don't fit in. Our gifts are God's good design. They are according to God's distribution as he determines. And we should be reminded, the principle we saw in the earlier passage last week, that we must seek to be content with what is given us, with what God has given us, and the work that God has called us to do for him. So so Paul addresses those who think, I don't belong because I'm different, in those three ways. He says, what God has done is what matters, not what you say. He says, your gifts are needed within the body, and your gifts are God's good design. And so, friends, can I just say, if you ever feel that sense of, I just don't fit in, I just don't belong, because my gifts are different to others, remember what Paul is teaching here. Your gifts are needed. Your gifts are given by God. And you are part of the body because of what Christ has done in saving you. 
But then we come to the second struggle, and it's not the struggle of inferiority that Paul addresses. It's rather the struggle of superiority, thinking that we don't need others. So here, isn't it astonishing? Paul is going from two massive extremes, isn't he? <laughs> those who think they just don't fit in, and those who think that no one else should be there. And now we're going to look at this, because here Paul is thinking of someone who is so proud of themselves and of their own gifts that they believe that makes them superior. So they think that their contribution is what really matters, and the contribution of others is insignificant and unnecessary. Someone help me to see this week that that is one way, that way of thinking is one way in which our sinful hearts can try and protect against the fear of being dispensable. Because in order to protect against the possibility of us being dispensable, what do we do? Well, we inflate ourselves and we deflate others in that sense to keep us secure. Because that means that we matter and we don't fear that we'll be put to one side. Well, what is God's answer to that? Well, I think there's two parts to God's answer as we look at verses 21 through to 25. And the first is very simple. You cannot say that. The language changes in the way in which the different body parts are addressed by Paul as he speaks metaphorically in that sense. Because you remember in the first part, the eye, the ear should not say was the language. But now in the second part... The language is, uh, the I cannot say. It's stronger, isn't it? It's got a more of a force to it. And I think that's deliberate because this word cannot really drives home to us to say, how is it you can think this way? How is it in light of the one body nature of the church, in the light of the importance of the varied gifts in the church? Paul is saying it's nonsense. You cannot say this. In the light of, of all that he's already said to those who feel they don't fit in. In the light of God's good design and of how gifts are shared within the body. We cannot speak this way. You know, there are some times when we just need someone to speak to us in a very straightforward way. And that's what God's doing here. He's saying, do not think that way about any other Christian. So rather than considering amputation of others from the body, have the opposite response. And that's what Paul presses home to us. Because look at verse 22. On the contrary, strong contrast, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Note the language there. You might view them, verse 22, as seeming to be weaker. Yeah, You look at them and you think they are weaker in their contributions. Look at the final phrase in verse 22. They are indispensable. It is not your judgment that matters, friends. That is a declaration of God that they are indispensable. And notice the strength of the language here. It's not just that they matter. It's not just that they help. It's not just that they contribute something useful. You cannot do without them. As you look around at the body of Christ, that is how we should think. Just like a car cannot start without the key. Just like a bike cannot run or uh, 
move without a wheel. Sorry, I should have thought about that word. They cannot be done away with. They are indispensable. That's how high. That's how high we should value each other within the body of Christ. And so we should treat with special honor, special modesty, the parts that seem to lack honor or seem to be unpresentable. And we should do that because that's what God does. Verse 24, end of the verse, God has given special honor to the parts that lacked it. Friends, can I put it to you that at the end of verse 22, that we should see, brothers and sisters, as indispensable is certainly the most challenging statement in the whole of this passage. But is perhaps one of the most challenging things that Scripture calls us to in how we think about one another. Because indispensable means I cannot do without you. I was struck this afternoon as I was reflecting on this and thinking about this, and I jumped onto church suite. Andy's not here, but he'd be delighted I logged in. And I looked at the rotors for a Sunday. Now, not every rotor is on church suite, which wouldn't make Andy happy, but that's okay. But almost everyone is. Do you know how many people are listed for service this morning? 40. This evening, at least 12. can't do without you. You can't do without me and without each other. Put it that way. We are indispensable to one another. Let us never think anything less than that. But rather let verse 27 be how we think about the body. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Amen.